There comes a point in our lives when we strive to define our true meaning and purpose. Many of us move through our existence day after day, living through the same cycles and patterns that leave us feeling unfulfilled and searching for more. For those of us seeking a way to transform life, to capture fulfillment in every moment, to redefine how we perceive the truths of our reality so we can live this life to its fullest. This is the Live This Life Podcast. I'm your host, Heath Cummings. I'm here to inspire you to ask yourself the question every day. Are you living or are you killing time? In today's episode, I am very excited to welcome Sahaj Ticketin to the show. Sahaj is the lead singer of my all-time favorite band, Ra. He is also a highly accomplished songwriter and producer, working with artists like Nikki Sick from Motley Crue, LeJean Witherspoon from Seven Dust, Tommy Vex from Bad Wolves. And on top of all the other amazing stuff that he does, he has some pretty inspiring perspectives on some of the stuff that we talk about on the show. I'm pretty excited to feature Ra's story today. On top of being one of the most amazing rock bands of the last 20 years, the story behind the band is one of persevering. Originally forming in the early 2000s and got big with their song, Do You Call My Name? They followed up with Rectifier, Fallen Angels, and the police remake of Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. And these guys are just still at it after so many challenges they've had over the years. And they're back at it with a new album titled Intercorrupted with a hit single of the same name. And it's gotten some pretty regular play on Octane. I've seen it on there quite a few times. And the album drops next Friday, March 19th, 2021, with a live show to follow. But I'm going to let the man himself tell us all about that one. Sahaj, welcome to the show, my friend. What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. I'm so pumped you guys are back at it. You got this album coming out and stuff. But how you been? How's everything going? Well, you know, um, the idea of putting out another raw record uh, seemed good at the time. But now it's just uh, it's just so much work. You know, I realized that also, like, you know, in the old days, you make a record, you book a tour, you do some interviews, maybe some phone interviews, and that's it, really. And then you work on the next record. But for me, with a whole producer career going on and writing for a million bands and sort of having a, a, a monthly, you know, nut of crazy amounts of songs to work on the idea of doing a band you know bringing the band back was was very cool but there's also just you know nowadays holy crap it's not what it used to be it's like you've got a you've got a post every 45 seconds you've got so you got 19 different social media platforms to to negotiate with you have to and you, you you can't be unavailable for comments and posts you know in the old days Somebody, if I wanted to talk to the police, good luck. (laughs) You're not, you're not getting through to any of those guys. And it's not like, you know, any of us really talk to Taylor Swift or anything, but the fact is, you know, she's active on social media. Everybody's act. I mean, the rock posts twice a day. It's true. Why does he post twice a day? He doesn't need to post twice a day. He has all the money and all the fame. And the guy is posting twice a day. Likes to be on camera though. What? Likes to be on camera though. Yeah, I mean, some of us like to be on camera. I don't really mind. I mean, today I feel a little goofy, but most of the time 
I'm, I'm comfortable on camera. I just feel like I also want to spend like an hour with my son at some point during the day, you know, maybe not sit in this room, which people will see this room and be like, Oh, this is a cool room, but it's my prison. This is my, this is my bat cave. And I'm, you know, and I'm just fighting, fighting crime all day. So it's a, it's a lot. I'm not complaining, right? I'm not saying that it's not fun and that it's not cool, but it definitely has um, created an entire like layer of chaos in my life that I didn't, you know, that I already, I'm adding to an already chaotic life. So it, it's, uh, it's been crazy. I've been working harder than I've ever worked in my entire life just to try and keep up with the amount of stuff that we're doing. And we and we're not even touring. No, that's true. You guys aren't even touring. I mean, look at the dynamic that's changed over the last 20 years. Like you said, I mean, when you first started this out, you didn't have the family that was there. You know, you didn't have that obligation. You didn't have the obligation as a producer, really. You guys, you were just pretty much working for the band. I used to do 15 songs every two years. Now I do 15 songs a month. Wow. So there's there's a there's a there is a level. I mean, you know hopefully it reflects in the album because I feel as if all the tricks of the trade that I've learned by producing, you know, bands. And one of the bands you left out in your list is actually one of my most, the, the band I'm probably most proud of my work in and that's star set. Yeah. And, you know, in being able to be sort of involved with that band from a pretty early stage um, and having a, you know, a now 10, 11 year relationship with Dustin, it, um, it it's it's amazing i learned so much just watching how they do it because i sort of feel like um star set is uh not raw like but somehow an offshoot in the sense that it's concept it's concept and then really striving hard to be forward and progressive in its in its context you know and not necessarily just be um trendy you know so i think there's um a lot of things that i was semi prepared for going in on this album cycle just because of my sort of birds eye view of what the star set universe is yeah they got a unique sound i've been kind of checking them out over the last couple of years and they definitely got a unique sound you can tell they got some of the the sahaj raw influences going on in there but they got their own unique sound i mean even the track that he was on on your newest album it even sounded different than raw like he gives his own unique sound so it's it's cool to hear an artist do that because that's one of the things that drew me to you guys so much was back in the early 2000s you got breaking benjamin you got disturbed you got all these bands out there that you guys were kind of circling around with but then i found like over the years their next album kind of sounded similar to the first one and then their third one sounded just exactly the same as the last two whereas you guys really kept a unique sound with a handful of others kind of in my opinion but that unique sound is kind of hard to find. A lot of people are going after, especially back then, everybody was like cookie cutter in the industry on trying to find that niche after, you know, the late nineties. Well, I think what it comes down to a lot of the time is um, you have to have, and I talk about this, me and Bob Marlette, who's another music producer, um, we have a, a, an unadvertised YouTube uh, songwriting channel called Rock You Now, just Rock You Now, like the letter U. And um, 
you know, one of the things, our first lesson, immediately the first thing we wanted to talk about was priorities. And you can set up your career to fail or you can set up your career to, to have life based on what you prioritize. And I think the answer to what you're referring to in my, in my experience or in my perspective is that too many bands prioritize sounding like other bands and too many bands get excited by what Bring Me the Horizon does or what Architects does or whatever the flavor of the month does. And unfortunately that seduction to that is successful, I want to be like that siphons quite a bit away of the risk and reward factor that it takes in order to sound different. You know, making this raw record for me was <clears throat> risky in the sense that I knew that people who never heard the band before might not get it, but it felt very safe in the sense that I knew that it was genetically linked enough to all the stuff we've already done that it wasn't going to freak out our fans or anybody who's familiar with the band. So you have to be willing to take that risk. I personally feel like there's some songs on the record that will bring in new people because I think there's songs that are uh, utterly contemporary. And, you know, I mean, I know where some of the melodies and some of the ideas that I got, I stole from rappers. Like there's literally three songs on that record that are absolutely inspired by, you know, urban songs that are popular today. So um, by Juice World I, from Mac Miller. I mean, there's stuff on that record that no one would ever know where I got it from. But it's but I listen to that stuff not because what's funny for me and I think what helps me at my age to not suck is that. I genuinely like new music. Like, I'm not that guy that's like, oh, it was better when Zeppelin did it. You know, like, I hate, I, I, I don't listen to Zeppelin anymore. I don't listen to Metallica anymore. I don't listen to the bands that forged my opinions anymore. I don't even really listen to the police anymore. And it's not because they aren't great and amazing. It's just that I fully digested those, those sounds and concepts and ideas. I do understand the difference between raw creativity and produced creativity, you know? So now you have everything is highly produced, highly finished, highly technical, highly edited, and highly, you know, and there's an exceptional amount of studio trickery and artificialness that's going on on your average radio song. Um, whether that's pop, country, doesn't matter the genre, there's an enormous amount of, of technical voodoo going on. And that is sort of the reason why what you're talking about, the, you know, certain bands coming back and doing the same thing over and over again, whatever it is, that becomes a crutch. So the technical ability to sort of fix it in the mix is such a crutch for so many people that the creative aspect becomes secondary to, did we get close enough? You know, and getting close enough in the old days was never an option. So in that regard, the reason why, you know, people say, oh, it was better back in the day is because you couldn't tune Robert Plant. You know, Robert Plant had to sing it the way he sang it. Sometimes it was off key. 
but the off-keyness of it made it real and made it awesome. And he's a little sharp and whole lot of love the whole time. But it sounds cool because it's that Mary J. Blige blues sharp where it's just a little bit off, but it seems intentional. Right. You know, people don't people do that now, but now it's a shtick. Now they do it as like, oh, well, now we know we can sing a little bit sharp and it's cool. But you know, the the the, the sheer number of songs being created on a daily basis today sort of um it, it creates an enormous amount of fear-based decisions by creators because everyone's afraid that they're not going to get heard. And if you're making your decisions based on what you're afraid isn't going to work, as opposed to what might work, then you're ultimately creating barriers and limitations even before anyone's ever heard anything. So like, you know, on this record, you were, you've already heard the record. So yeah. on this record, putting a song like blind to the light, which I put, when I put that song on the record, it wasn't, I never thought about it as what it actually turned out to be. I thought about it as a song where I liked the melodies and the chords. Mm -hmm. Then I realized that there were, I was sort of channeling a little bit of my inner Chris Cornell on that song. And I was like, wow, this is sort of a thing. And then when I wrote the lyrics, I was like, well, this is sort of a, my 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 honoring his memory. You know, that's that's where that song ultimately started to form. And then when it came to mixing it, I thought, <clears throat> wow, I've done all the studio tricks on all the other songs. What would happen if I just made the drums? I didn't gate them. I didn't do anything to them. Just a little EQ and a little compression and let Scooter just play. And all the rest of that track is pretty organic. And most people would be afraid to do all of that because they'd be like, oh, I don't want to, you know, oh, well, you know, what if someone likes this song and it doesn't have cool drums? They're not going to like, you know, but the, the truth is no one's going to ever not like a song because of a kick or a snare drum. You know, they're, they're only going to like a song if it connects with them emotionally and stuff like that. And I, And again, it goes back to priorities. So when you're talking about, you know, I mean, I'm not afraid to say it. I love Disturbed, but Disturbed has made the same record since 2002. Exactly. Not that, you know, not that I don't even think they, I don't think they're unaware of it. I think they do it knowingly. I think they understand that there's a formula that Disturbed is a brand and they don't want to go from that, too far from that brand. Many other bands do the same thing. Um, if you last long enough, you can almost recycle the same sound because in 10 years, it's a different audience. But the, you know, for me personally, my favorite bands were like the Beatles and, and, and the police and those, those records from one record to another would evolve massively. You know, they didn't sound like the same band by the end, you know, um, Outlandos Dia Moore, the police record it, compared to what synchronicity was, they're just two different animals, even though it's all the same energy and the same color. So Anyway, yeah, that sort of answers your your thing about originality. But but also, you, you know, there's a little bit of magic. You know, you have to have that magic in within. You know, it's like it's like I, I, I lived in L.A. for 10 years and I worked with a lot, a lot of really breathy, pouty, Silver Lake girl singers. And people are always like, I don't understand why Billie Eilish is so huge. And I'm like. Well, here's the thing you should know. 
there's a thousand girls just like Billie Eilish in LA, but she wins because she connects on such a visceral level with the people that hear her songs based on what I call singer's details in the sense that she, infl- she injects enormous amounts of detail into her performances that a lot of singers just don't have the vocabulary to do. And it's amazing that she does it at her age. Um, and then there's just magic in the songwriting and it, all of it, you know, there's so many bands and artists who feel very strongly like, why can't, why aren't we as big as that band? Or why aren't we as well known as that? We're just as good. And sometimes it has to do with priorities. You know, you might sound as good as that band, but are you connecting emotionally? Or do you have a singer who has, <clears throat> you know, who has a vulnerability or a character trait that is just magnetic, you know? So, yeah, that's that's my, my scoop on that. Yeah, and I feel like Raw's album's, really like captured a lot of that authenticity because people that I know that, that like you guys, people I've been to shows with and stuff. And just whenever I've like put it on, we've had like a party or something like that. I'd be like, Oh, so this is raw. And people remember where they were at certain times. Like when from one came out, they can kind of remember how, what was going on in their life because it had a certain vibe to it and duality. Like everybody kind of, you, you put on that CD and you kind of remember where you were because each one has its own sort of unique personality and I think that authenticity and personality that came out in the album is really what drives it apart from other albums where it's just kind of like, ah, this is the same kind of thing. It's got, you know, a new radio friendly hooky kind of song. But in all reality, some of these other artists just coming out with the same album with your, you guys, it comes on. You're like, oh, yeah, this one kind of takes me back. Is that kind of like, was that an intentional kind of thing as you guys were going along? Or is it just something that kind of naturally happens when you're moving on to these different albums? I just think I was trying to inject the things in other meaningful records that excited me. So, you know, like Peter Gabriel and the police and Prince, like those three elements to me, what you get, you get mesmerized by the person, then you get mesmerized by the songs, and then you get mesmerized by the universe that's created by each person. Each person created an alternate existence that you could escape your life to go to. So I wanted some of that. But then when it came to Metallica and Korn and Soundgarden, what I loved about those bands was being able to turn up the knob in an artistic way on the intensity and the passion, making something so intense and so passionate and so, I mean, heavy is a terrible word because I think people think, people use the word heavy as if to mean like, detuned and breakdowns and things like that. But to me, heaviness is all about, I mean, Depeche Mode is crazy heavy to me. So it's like, I think when you can carry that weight and then that passion, and then you just explode like a, I mean, like a supernova, you know, like that whole sort of explosion of, of uh, uncontrollable energy. And that's what Metallica was to me. I mean, when I first saw them, um, it was years, I was years late in seeing them live, but I watched that binge and purge video probably a thousand times. And to me, Hatfield, you know, like Hatfield is just a nuclear bomb. He just has always been. And I don't know if there's something absolutely kinetic about Metallica that, you know, really, and, and then there was an artfulness to corn, you know, there was an artfulness to issues. There was an artfulness to uh, freak on a leash those albums for me 
were so artful and yet somehow heavy and crazy. And, you know, I was a big Mr. Bungle fan in the early days. So corn mm-hmm. was, you know, corn and Slipknot were, were direct descendants of Mr. Bungle. And I really was attracted to that, you know, and I still say today using the, the, the word I said I wouldn't use, but I still think the heaviest song ever recorded by any band ever is People Equal Shit by Slipknot. I just think that's the most brutal track. It's, it is his vocal. It's the combination of the vocal, the arrangement, the, the complete disregard for studio perfection, but absolute chaos that ensues. I mean, I've broken, I've broke stuff in my studio jamming out to that stuff <laughs> just because, you know, how can you not? Right. So what's the, uh, what's the vibe of the new album? What's the, what's the target goal for that one? I mean, actually before going on to that, the, I talk a lot about some geeky science consciousness and neuroscience kind of stuff on this show all the time. I've, I've had so many conversations with Ben Carroll about this kind of stuff too. And they they say like back to those albums that bring you back to certain things like scent is the strongest sense stored in memory but music is because the rhythm and the the harmonies and melodies trigger the responses and connections back to the emotional states that you were kind of in similar to what scent does so like with you guys having so much harmonies and stuff like that in your music you would be the kind of thing. I mean, it depends on however the music reached you at the time, no matter what, like whatever you're saying, you know, listening to corn, that doesn't have to be a, a harmonizing kind of music, but listening to the kind of studies that come out about that kind of thing, it explains where your, your psyche goes when you hear these songs, you're like, yeah, this takes me right back to where I was. Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny. So Dustin has a PhD in, uh, uh, I forget what, what area of engineering he has his PhD in, but we have, we have pretty intense conversations about stuff. And one of the things that I've been talking about a lot, and I guess it's sort of, it's woven into the fabric of the new record just a little bit, especially in the way that I formulated, I I did a a very conscious thing with the lyrics this time, but uh, I'll get to that in a second, but regarding what you just said, um, I think we're in the middle of what's going to amount to be a reshaping of memories because I was born in 1969. So I'm old as fuck. Right. I barely remember my childhood, but my son has 1080p HD video of him at one years old and him at two years old at three years old. He has, a hundred memories stored in my Google drive that he's going to have for his entire life, providing the world doesn't explode. And well, either way, it'll be his entire life. But the point is, I don't think what you were talking about, that whole, the way we, the way our memories work, the, the mind is so unbelievably adaptive, right? We've seen such a massive shift in the last 15 to 20 years on how we think just thinking just natural day-to-day processes have now evolved into a completely different thing i'll use the cheapest example possible which is google searches we no longer need to store trivial information and i talk to a lot of people who who constantly say you know i used to know this stuff now i just i have to look it up 
I used to know this stuff all the time. And now I have to look it up. And I don't know if that's true or if it's just people getting older and forgetting or whether or not we're actually changing whether or not our brains prioritize memories the same way because we know we have a safety net, maybe subconsciously, but it really does seem almost to be like a reorganization of consciousness. And we have this other thing that's happening, which this is getting very heady. But when I was young, I read a book. When I was like 19, I read a book by a guy named Jay Krishnamurti. He was an Indian guy who was supposed to be a chosen one type dude. And he went to school in Oxford in England. And he came out super highly, unbelievably super high intelligent. His books are hard to read because every he's just using the highest level of vocabulary possible. But what he basically said is, is that the, the, the shared consciousness of humanity is like a neural net and that you're essentially responsible for everything. You, because you're a synapse in the global brain, you're just as responsible for what happens on the other side of the planet as you are for what happens here because you're just part of the, the system. Now, I mean, he wrote that book in like 1980. Now, that's a literal thing. Now it's a literal cause and effect based on what you say on the internet. Your little tiny connection, your little tiny spark can set off massive chain reactions that trigger complete changes in mental shifts, mental capacity, mental prioritization, reality perceived reality. I mean, it's pretty crazy to think that 20 to 30 years from now, when my son is in his 30s, he is going to have existed entirely in a world where all the information and all the interaction was monitored. It's crazy to it think is. that. It is. It's really crazy. Think back to what you just said about like having to look everything up on Google. Think about the last phone number you actually memorized. How many phone numbers do you actually know of people anymore other than maybe like the ones you knew from family members or close people that you actually had to dial? Otherwise, none of us even know a phone number anymore because we just we dial it from our phone. Like I literally don't know any new phone numbers for people that I probably stored my phone over the last five years or how many places do I not know actually how to get to without the help of the stupid misdirection maps on my phone, you know, like yeah, exactly. totally dependent on that stuff. The complacency that comes with that, of course, is dangerous because if the technology goes down, then we're all screwed, yeah. right? Yeah. If, if all of our phones wiped themselves tomorrow, we wouldn't know how to connect with each other. Nope. We wouldn't be able to find each other. There'd be people that I would lose for my, the rest of my life based on the fact that I had no phone and no internet. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, and, and there is sort of an upside to it, if you want my honest opinion. And this is, this relates to what the album is about. So to me, the upside of it is, um, and I talk about this in almost every interview that people ask me, what is Intercorrupted about? So really what Intercorrupted about the entire album plus the song is redefining human, human, uh, humanity's baseline. So if we can, you know, think about being, again, I'm bringing it back to my child because I'm so preoccupied with how he's going to turn out. But think about the idea of of when you're growing up. You learn 90% of what is right and wrong 
by negative reinforcement. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. But also, you're also told, and this is the negative part, you're too fat. You're too ugly. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not fast enough. You're not intelligent enough. You're, you, like, There's so many things that we're using an unrealistic bar to measure every single person as they're developing, which obviously there's a small percentage of Elon Musk's and Bill Gates and, you know, and Warren Buffett's and, you know, and, and uh, Mark Cuban's. Those small percentage of people who excel, the rock, all these people, those people who sort of use, who, who the system has embraced and, and sort of exponentially expanded in terms of success and power and all this other stuff, we're told from a way too young an age that that that's you can get there that that's an achievable thing and we're also told essentially and this is where it gets slightly controversial that humanity is good that we're told and when you're young you know you're basically the first lessons you get is be a good person be a good person everyone's a good person look at that guy he's a good person you're not being good enough you're not being that so all of this negative reinforcement that starts sort of like diminishing your ability to have a free perspective and then also just this false premise that humanity itself is good, I think, creates all the suffering in the world. Because if you come into the world thinking or you come, you grow into the world thinking that everything is great, you get to a point where they're like, oh, wait, no, you're 13. By the way, everything sucks. <laughs> people murder and people rape and people are, you know, horrible and there's classism and racism and sexism. I mean, all of those things are things you figure out when you're old enough. Well, what would happen if we taught kids that, that the idea of redefining that baseline and saying, you know, humanity is flawed. We have a lot of things that we do that are really, really selfish and sort of self-serving and not a lot of things that are actually good. Mm -hmm. But within that universe, there is the ability to evolve and grow. We may be able to, if we can redefine the baseline of what humanity is for every child that comes into the planet, maybe by through that acceptance, we have the opportunity to evolve beyond it. But if we come into this world and you're 20 years old, by the time you realize everything's terrible, then you're just like, well, I, this is the world I live in. So I'm going to keep this way. You know, and I think that that's why we look at the last hundred years and technology, which has grown so exponentially, has outpaced our ability to keep up with it. Yeah. And it's getting it's getting worse, honestly. You know, the the. And there's another aspect of this, and this is going to make me an asshole, and I'm sorry to say it, but there's also the idea that all people are created equal. And that's an unfortunate thing that that, again, it goes to the goodness of humanity. All people are not created equal. If people were created equal, everyone you know, there wouldn't be pretty, there wouldn't be Brad Pitt and there wouldn't be Joe Schmo who works at the gas station because he doesn't look like Brad Pitt. Right. So there's, there's an, <clears throat> there's an aspect of honesty that I think needs to be sort of re redefined, reassessed and redistributed because I think we can still have the society that we have 
and still sort of base things on privilege and not privilege because that's what we want to do. But we have to admit that that's what we want. We have to admit that we want to pay more attention to this person because they're hot and not to this person because they're not. No one wants to admit any of this. This is all subversive and terrible, but this is all we think about all day. I want to be rich like The Rock. I want to have that. I see, I'm on TikTok. I see Jason Derulo's $8 million house. I want Jason Derulo's $8 million house. Be honest about it. Don't be, don't, don't play that game where a five-year-old sees Jason Derulo's house and you say, well, you know, if you work hard, you can get that too. Well, yeah, if you have the right DNA and you have the right IQ and you have the ability and you socially aren't repressed and you aren't, there's just 9 million reasons why it's not going to happen. So it's better, in my opinion, just to be honest. And I think that that's what this album is hinting at, us starting to take responsibility for the things we don't like. Because we've grown into a society where everything that is a problem is someone else's fault. There's literally nothing else left. I mean, we, you know, the country's terrible. It's Trump's fault. The country's going to be terrible. It's Biden's fault. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason anymore for the, for the selections that are being made. The selections are being made for us and we're simply reacting to the fact that it's been made for us. Mm -hmm. We're no longer really acting on our own because the, again, the baseline is all based on lies. So if the baseline is based on lies, then believing lies when you're older becomes second nature. And it's tough as a parent. I mean, I have a 13 year old who I'm trying to slowly teach him what's going on in the world and the ways of the world. I mean, I feel like I've got a pretty enlightened view of, of everything I've seen. I mean, I used to be a cop. I was a cop for like 18 years and got out of it and got into politics because of the stuff that I saw that I didn't like and I wanted to change things. I couldn't do it from the place I was in. And unlike what you're saying with a lot of people, it's always someone else's fault. And it's like, yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that. So I made a major life shift, went out, did a bunch of stuff, including doing what I'm doing here doing a whole different way of living life because I wanted to see things shift in a major way, telling him, you can do that too. You can 180 your life, no matter what, no matter where you're at, but also trying to balance that out with saying like, yeah, letting him be a kid, but then also, Hey, the world really isn't that great of a place. Like he saw a lot of the ugly behind the scenes that he didn't actually get to see on the news or they talk about in school over the last year and a half and it'd be like, Hey, you know, this, this is kind of what's really going on with this situation and trying not to let my own personal political and social views dirty, what the real truth of a situation might be, let him determine it for himself. But it's hard as a parent because you want to let them be a kid, but then also at this sort of pivotal age that he's at, you have to kind of, Hey, you're, you're getting into adulthood. You're kind of moving in that direction. So you kind of have to know what the world's a little bit about because is at the age where they can kind of understand it. So it's tough, but I mean, your son's pretty young. So it's like, you can't have some of these really deep conversations about the way that the world is. Cause you want to kind of have him be the, the, the innocent kid. Yeah. But he's already at the age where like, you know, other kids around him are, you know, of course the first one is always, you know, he's like, well, Tommy said, God made this and that, da, 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 da. and I have to have a conversation where like, you know, because I'm not particularly religious. Um, so, you know, I don't want him to 
I'm not, my wife is sort of like, oh, don't worry. It's not a big deal. He'll grow out of it. That type thing. But my thing is, is like, yeah, but so what? Who cares if he's going to grow out of it? I'm going to tell him what I think so that he understands that there's not one perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, if you turn 12 and 13 and you want to go explore Catholicism on your, in, in, in whatever way you want to, that's fine. But you're going to have all the information to make that decision with, at least as much as I can supply to you that you'll absorb. So, you know, because when I was a kid, I, I, I did the same things. I mean, I, but, it's, but my magic age was around 12, 13. I started really thinking about things. I wrote a script for a movie, a two-man, a two-person play when I was 12 years old called Cancer. And it was an old man talking to a young girl. And all the dialogue was about how human beings actually act almost exactly like cancer cells and how everything, you know, as being a mutation and taking over and, and sort of draining all the resources and all stuff. So when it so I had told this to some a friend of mine, and then we went to see The Matrix. And then, of course, Agent Smith is saying exactly the same thing. And I'm like looking at my friend and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think, we, you know, the, 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 in the same way that a five-year-old kid 10,000 years ago was already being trained on how to spear an animal. I think the same thing applies to the, that the weapon that I'm trying to give the spear I'm trying to train him now is his mind. Mm. He has to be aware of the, the, the contradictions and the lies that are going to be sort of forced fed to him at a rate that was way, way more intense than it was when I was a kid. You know, he's already watching, you know, things on television, even though they're little kids shows, but there's always sort of a theme of you, you can do it. And I'm just like, yeah, that's great. You can do it. I do want you to be, I want you to be confident, but I want you to be confident, but also have a good sense of how to assess reality. It's good. So back to the, the new album talking about one of the lyrics from, from intercorrupted, the darkest two world to see the light between you and me. Now, Definitely watching the video and seeing what's going on. A lot of symbology. I mean, was it influenced by current world events? I mean, it really seems like the timing on it is pretty, it's pretty poignant, but who knows how long yeah, this has yeah, been in the know, works. I, so, so I grew up a New Yorker. Um, I think for people who grew up in New York City, Donald Trump was a certain person, right? So because I grew up in New York City, I met him twice. Um, the, the issue that I had with the way the, the, the way the world was going was about character and it had, it had to do with personality and character. It had to do with, um, sort of like just basic empathy and calm and, and, and compassion. And I, I just don't know how to run uh, uh, my life without those things. And when, when he came in the office, um, I was like, okay, you know, let's see if he can do some businessy stuff because that's what I thought everybody wanted him to do was just to come in and sort of rock and roll with the business experience. But as a New Yorker, 
I knew he was a terrible businessman. Like it, it was not something we talked about fleetingly. This was a fact. This was like you, you were in, you're a New Yorker. You know Donald Trump is a hustler. So it was fine. And and again, I'm you have to understand like my universe, both politically, spiritually, and everything, it's all down the middle. It's a hundred percent in the middle mm-hmm. because there are conservative ideals that I really like that have to do with financial things. I was, I was down for the most part with a lot of the um, make the world pay for what we do for them, as opposed to us just paying for it. Mm-hmm. But I was also cognizant of the other side which is, well, yeah, but the rich guy in the room pays for dinner because everybody owes him that, you know? So that's how it's like, there's two sides to that coin. So for me, either way, I was just always like, I, and then it became a thing of character and then sort of like organizational skills and things that just weren't whatever. That was not, you know, and then, and then the tribalism and the division that I was seeing when it came to, um, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I say this with, with somewhat of an entertaining aspect, but, you know, Chris from Trapped, who is a militant right wing guy <clears throat> and a little crazy. Um, was on my page quite a bit to debate. And, and he was very respectful of me because I was trying to understand. Like I definitely, you know, if you go through my feed through the last few years, my posts were always in the name of, yes, I'm, I'm essentially a liberal, but I want to know, like, I want to know what's right and what's wrong. And through my conversations, even some with Chris, I absorbed information that I was a little bit more sort of sympathetic, not only sympathetic, but you know, changed my mind on certain aspects, you know, the whole, and then certain things about libertarianism and everything. Like there's just things that I really like, but if you're smart, you like a lot of things. That's what my, my whole fear was, is that people were just sort of blindly choosing a side and sticking to it regardless. And how does that work? That doesn't work. That doesn't work for anything. There's no business that works that way. There's nothing that works that way. Works for division. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So the album you know, there are all kinds of interesting things. Like even that song I mentioned before, Blind to the Light, right? So the idea in the song is, the the, the reason I, I chose that as the key phrase of the song is you would immediately assume that being blind to the light is a bad thing. I want to, I want to be open to the light. But actually in the song, if you read the lyrics, it's a choice. You have to choose the response. If you want to be in the light, then you have to have the responsibility to act like you're in the light. But if you choose to be blind to the light, you don't have to act that way. If you choose to ignore it, then you have no responsibility to be that way. And that's really what I'm talking about in the song. And and the reason it relates to Chris Cornell is because I feel like Chris loved being, you know, he he had his mental issues, he had his depression, and he liked being, he liked the fame, but he didn't want the fame, and he didn't want the light on him. So blind to the light, meaning I, I, he didn't want the light to see him, which was sort of the way I was playing with the words. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff like that, that I think it applies. And I think, you know, like there's a song on the album called Let, Let It Lie. And, you know, that's a phrase that you say, well, it's like, dude, don't get into it, man, just let it lie. Right. Meaning let it lie there. Don't don't engage it. But in my version of the song, again, another play on words, it says, let it lie, let it lie, 
Cause love ain't do or die. Let it lie. The truth don't want to stay. Meaning just let it lie because the truth doesn't want to stay. The truth doesn't want to be around. So just let it lie. And that's what I feel like essentially what was happening with the media. <clears throat> you know, the media was going back and forth. You could go, you know, CNN and NBC and, and Fox, they were all with these massive agendas. And instead of, of worrying about the truth or what, where, the, if there was a truth, it was more about just, just let it lie. Just tell them, tell them whatever. Just let, it, let, let them, let them hear whatever they need to hear to make sure that they stay here. Yeah. And I've come to the defense of the whole fake news media thing a bunch of times because I like to point out the fact that if you want to blame the media, you have to blame Facebook and Twitter. Uh-huh. You can't blame MSNBC, CNN, and and Fox because to me, you know, I'm old enough to remember Tom Brokaw and you know Peter Jennings and and Ted Koppel, right? Can you imagine trying to compete with Facebook and Twitter with Tom Brokaw and Ted Koppel? Those dudes, no one would watch. So all all that that all these media companies, the only thing they can do right now, at least in my opinion is become inflammatory and become crazy and become partisan and become agended because that's the only way you keep your audience if you're competing with a phone that is literally posting something every second. So they're trying to do, you know, it's business. It's not, people are like, oh, they have this massive political agenda. They're just trying to like keep, you know, the pedophiles in, in power and blah, blah, blah. It's not that. It's dollars. It's just money. It's just how do we keep you engaged? What is the clickbait for this moment? We know you hate Trump. So here it goes. We know you love Trump. So here it goes. That's all they care. You know, and yes, fake news, but it's not their fault because if they all of a sudden switch to Ted, Ted Koppel and Tom Brokaw, they'd go out of business. They'd right. be gone. In, in, in a matter of a year, they would be bought by Facebook. Yep. You know, so anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a tirade, but that, this is all the framework of this album. You know, I mean, there's a couple of love songs on it. Um, the song I did with Lejean, Nobody Loves Love You. Love that one. It's a good song. Yeah, that song is is specifically and unpurposely basically the 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 sequel to Busted, which is an old B-side that we did in 1998 mm-hmm. before we had our regular record deal. It's just sort of a goofy, almost like urban song. Um, but yeah, it's just Busted for this record. And Jezebel, which is um, just crazy mathy gent riff. But I'm like, well, I mean, in classic raw fashion, if I'm going to do something genty and mathy, then I got to sing something super poppy and, and things. And and because the because of the nature of the lyric and what Jezebel is, you know, this horror and whatever, I was like, oh, this is my Roxanne. So when the melody came out, I was like, you know, Roxanne. And I'm like, Jezebel. Like, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to invoke, if you know Roxanne, it should invoke that. And then I put a little policey moments in and stuff like that. I mean, I made the song super long just because I wanted it to be an album cut and not a single so much because I just felt it as that. I just felt it long. And you got, but, the, um, you got the Dear John throwback to Scorn, too. Yeah. So, you know, so that 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 goes to the next thing for anyone who's there's so many Easter eggs on this record. Like I thought about it, like as a Marvel movie, I'm like, well, I'm just going to throw a million Easter eggs into this. You know, someone, the other, uh, one of the other pre-sale people, cause 
they 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 got the record early. They posted something the other day that they caught my little crazy little voices reference. So in Let It Lie, I say crazy little voices, which of course is the first song I ever put out. Yeah. And um, in even in the song with Dustin, there's this whole thing in the bridge about echoes. But me and Star, I have a Star Set song that I wrote called Echo, which was why I put it at the end of this thing. And there's so many lines, you know, and, uh, in in um, in uh, Let's Go to Mexico, which is a fun song that I wrote, which is sort of the album's rectifier. I got to kind of um, say that's probably one of my favorite ones on the album right now, other than yeah, some- so unapologetically poppy and Katy yeah. Perry fun. But it has like this thing. But, you know, in the verse, it says I'm, I refer again to I mean, I'm giving away all the Easter eggs, but it was so much fun putting them in. You know, in the verse, it, it just goes by real quick, but it says you, you, you were lost along the way, which is a song off of Black Sun. Yep. So there's a whole bunch of like references to a bunch of songs. There's references to old um, things. Um, what's really cool about that spoken part in Jezebel is the girl who's doing the talking, which I probably should advertise it more. because She's going to be mad at me. But um, the girl's doing the talking is Mixie from a band called Stitched Up Heart. And I, I produced their one of their records. So. Um, but she's really super duper cool and it's her voice doing the the thing. And I just thought to myself, wow, oh, what a crazy, weird sort of thing to throw into that song because it just felt like, wow, it's been 20 years, you know? And of course I did the weird voice in the original, so why not have an actual voice? <laughs> so yeah. Speaking of throwbacks cool. to old songs, I had to mention this one if I was able to actually hook you for this interview. But I remember there was one time when you were at an airport and you were like, all right, Q&A, who, you know, you do it all the time. But you're like, all right, Q&A, throw me what you got. And I'm like, my favorite raw song of all time is Sky. So I'm like, the, I'm always wondering, like, what the hell the lyrics meant? So I'm like, all right, dude, what's the lyrics to this? You're like, I don't know, ask Nandi Johannes. I'm like, who the hell is Nandi? You know, but yeah. believe it or not, I actually hooked up with the guy and him and I have been like, text message buddies and stuff like that now but i had to sh- i had to share a couple of things that he actually said because i wrote them down about that song and i'm like actually hearing some of what he actually wrote and what his intentions were for the song made the song even cooler for me i mean no matter what he said i'm like unless he says something really off the wall and kind of disturbing that might ruin the song for me but i'll probably just pre- i'll pretend i never heard it but he said uh let's see poor is the man that believes his own lies is a line that uh, to him is because it's a fine line in believing and really trusting yourself versus being jacked up on bullshit. And then he says, uh, let's see. The, the song, the line long may you run is a Neil Young reference. Um, trying to find this like profound part here without, without digging through this entire. Okay. So when he says, I must believe, I must believe in the sun is more reinforcing the trusting nature, but also the trust in our nature to move with the trees, to be still like a tree spirit on the wind, but to breathe our inner strength, like an ocean. I am everything and everything is me. Thought it was kind of a cool and deep, deep explanation on the lyrics since, you know, you kind of just defaulted to someone else on this. Like one opportunity I had to ask you this question. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't take credit for it. I mean, Nandi and I were best friends from uh, senior year in high school. We were in a band together for 10 years. Um, that's the only, no, actually there's, well, that's the only song. No, 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 there's two because there's a song on any, uh, called Anything You Want, which yeah. is on uh, on Critical Mass. That's another Nandi song. But um but yeah, I recently have reconnected with him and we're actually working on stuff together again. After yeah, that's what he said years ago. And he's um, cool, um, dude, cool, dude, super well, deep he's stuff. A, he's a, he is. He is one of those people that 
doesn't, you know, that sort of defies humanity in the sense that he's just, he's living in an, he, he's sort of in between dimensions. Like he just does not really exist in the real world, but in the best possible way. Like mm-hmm. he just, he absolutely has a perspective of an outsider on humanity, but he also is, you know, he's got kids and, and he's, and he's a smart, he's a smart guy, knows how to handle his business, but it's just, he's just got this perspective that this unique sort of one-liner outsider perspective on everything. And when he wrote that song it was many, many, many years ago, 93. Wow. He wrote that song. Um, I re-recorded it at least five times before it became the raw song because it just, it was just this thing that I, I couldn't let go of. And I kept on trying to find the right body for it, you know? And then what it came out, the way it came out is, and it's a strange song because there's only two choruses in it. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot, it's not, it's not repetitive. It's not, you know, all the sections don't repeat. It's, it's pretty crazy. But it's a huge fan favorite though. I mean, I've seen you guys, uh, man, at least a handful of times. And uh, every time that song comes on, people go berserk, you know, like every show I've been to, you guys have played it it's crazy to me how people are attached to it. Um, and, and my version was inspired by, um, stabbing Westward. You remember what do I have to do by stabbing Westward? Yeah. Yeah. Go listen to that song and you'll be like, Oh my God, it's sky because it's starts out small and then it gets big. Hmm. It's exactly where I got it from in terms of the arrangement. Um, on this album, both enough and somewhere beautiful are sort of spy inspired, uh, sky inspired. Yeah. Somewhere beautiful, literally, you know, was meant to be this album, Sky, if you will. That song tortured me for the last four or five years. You put the demo out and I had SoundCloud on my phone just to hear that like a minute and 30 long (laughs) snippet of that song. But no, the full version definitely didn't disappoint. You know, so pumped to have this album. But uh, I heard you tell some stories about being out there in the desert filming this video in like full suits. You know, this video was pretty cool. It was cool to see you guys like actually, you know, you had one video back in the day but this one was a cool one to see you know you could ben doing his uh his neo agent smith thing kind of dodging all the punches and stuff yeah and of course the you know the video itself listen the video looks the video quality looks really good the the storyline and everything was so much more ambitious than we had time to do so a lot of the goofiness that's in the video was because we had to get 80 shots from the period of 5.30 in the morning to 2.30 in the afternoon when it would be too hot to shoot. So we literally had that time period and that's it. One day to get 80 shots, eight zero, And we did everything once, maybe twice and moved on. So there's not a lot of like finesse. There's not a lot of like, oh, we know what the continuity of this part is. So let's carry it through. Like it literally was unbelievably fast and that it came out even semi-coherent is is a a miracle obviously you know to do it the way i really wanted to do it probably would have had to hire some cgi artists and stuff like that and it would have blown up you know it would have been 10 times the cost but i just wanted to do something fun and stupid and we we had we've only have one video and that video is not very good and I was like, I want to make sure this thing looks like a movie. You know, I certainly knew I wasn't going to get there, get up in some warehouse and put on a guitar and like sing a song because that's the worst video ever. You know, I have like, <laughs> I, 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 it's like I hate like, 
I hate like murderers, rapists, Adolf Hitler, and warehouse band videos. Like it's that order. Like warehouse band videos are like my kryptonite. Like I literally get angry. I, if a band sends me a video and it's on, and they're in a warehouse playing, I just don't. I don't even bother watching. Dead, dead it's like to you. instant. It's an instant denial. But um, but yeah. So making that video, we shot two videos. Uh, the other one, <clears throat> the other one, we have the footage for. Uh, but I haven't cut it yet, and we haven't figured. I haven't even decided which song it's for because it's, it's actually. The, the video itself it was not cut to, it's not set to a song. So it, just like Intercorruptive, Intercorruptive was not filmed to music. We just filmed it and then cut it to the song. So it's the same thing with this other video, which is far more like spiritual and sort of meditative. And is, that one's going to require some, some animation, it's mostly like energy stuff and stuff. But I have somebody in mind who's going to do the work. Any idea what song it's going to be for? Um, originally, it was for Loud. So um, I'm just not 100% sure that that, I mean, what's fun is I really like that song and there have been enough people online out of the people who got it early, who made mention of it uh, to say that it was one of their favorites on the record <coughs> that maybe it still might end up being for that. Um, but because the footage isn't necessarily song specific, it, there are a couple of other options. It could very well end up being somewhere beautiful. So it really depends on which song starts spiking and spins. You know, I mean, I, basically you look at your Spotify playlist and whatever's, whatever's getting the most love, you'd be like, all right, I'll make a video for that. Nice. You know? So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we haven't even dove into the story of raw, like the whole story of persevering and everything through it all. Well, but I feel like, you know, it, it, it's a, it's an interesting story, but I think, first of all, I've said it so many times and there's so many other places you can find this information. Yeah. But I think the important the important part of the story is understanding sort of the growth of the band as as it pertains to the the trials and tribulations. So, like, you know, what really was important to understand is is the industry part of this. Like, you get a big giant record deal, you think everything is set, you're done, you're going to be on Letterman in a week. That's the way you think, and and obviously. Back then, social media wasn't quite a thing and all this other stuff, but you really did have to do the work yourself. Well, nowadays, you have to do the work yourself, whether you're the biggest artist in the world or not. doesn't matter. You're the person. It's not like Katy Perry can have somebody else post on her page. She has to post. She has to do it. The Rock is on twice a day. Like I said, you have to do it. It's part of the, the thing. And nobody, you know, the, 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 real, the real travesty with Ra was that we were never really told. We were never told how hard it was going to be. We were never told what we really needed to be doing. We never had good guidance. We always had to learn by trial and error. And a lot of the time, no one was being honest and no one was saying, hey, by the way, your format is dying. The, the active rock format at radio is going away. So maybe make an adjustment. No one said that. No one, no one ever said, hey, you know, you should probably use this producer to do your record because you're really good at writing and demoing and all that stuff, but it'd be great to have this other person. No one ever said that. You know, I think duality, had I done it the original way I planned it, which with a guy named Dave Schiffman, who did like Event Sevenfold and all sorts of stuff as an engineer, if I had done that record with him, very, very, very likely that that would have been the biggest record we ever did. But when he wasn't available, instead of me finding the next guy who was just as good, I was like, fuck it, I'll do it myself. 
and nobody said anything. And you can listen to those records now and be like, oh, I still like these records. But to be honest, you know, sonically and production wise, they're, they're, they're a notch below what, what um, big records sounded like in those days. You know, System of a Down's record, which he also did, System of a Down's record, you know, toxicity and, 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 and stuff like that, those things, they sounded massive. They had such, it's such an important part of how you relate the dryness of the drums is something you actually remember viscerally with those records. Whereas, you know, the raw stuff, it's cool, but you know, I was such an arrogant asshole and I was right to a certain degree because I coasted on my voice. I was like, well, if my voice is cooler than everyone else's voice, then really the rest of it doesn't matter. The songwriting has to be cool and I have to sing good. But the mixes and the production and all that other stuff, you know, was holding the band back. Had we gotten a really, really great engineer producer for Duality, I think it would have changed the course of everything. Mind you, I might not have met my wife and I might not have Mason. So again, I'm not complaining, but the, 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 the thing with the band was always sort of, <coughs> you know, swinging for the fences every time and nobody ever teaching me how to stand and hold a bat. And that was sort of where it all ended up sort of falling apart. I, I, it's easy to point at the label. It's easy to point at managers, but really it comes down to, you know, us. We, we needed to know more and we just didn't know it. And whether, whether it was other people's responsibility to teach us or we needed to learn better, um, it didn't happen. So that's, that's the long and short of the band. But even with all of those problems, we still managed to sell a half million records and have people stick with us for 20 years. And it seems like, you know, just when we kind of think like with Black Sun, we kind of thought that might have been the last album. And then Critical Mass came out. And to me, I mean, I don't know how it did on your end, but on the surface, from the fan perspective, it looked like it did really good. I mean, there was this one thing that I saw pop up one time that you guys were number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and you'd beat out Pink and Imagine Dragons on that day. Like every day there was a new arrangement of the hot 100 and there's super mega dubstep at number one. I'm like, Oh my God. I remember I took a snapshot and sent it to you and you put it on Facebook. You're like, yeah, I don't know what this means, but it seems pretty cool. I mean, yeah. that's got, that's gotta be kind of an awesome feeling though, to take all that time off and end up coming back. And then now with this, with intercorrupted, I mean, to get regular airplay on, on octane and stuff like that and have a lot of people still there well, digging the stuff 20 years after you guys came together with all the hardships you had. I mean, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it feels good. But I mean, 90% of it is just the fact that everyone in the band has sort of established a life. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Ben, as you mentioned, has an awesome career now doing his sound healing stuff. DJ plays in 30 different bands, including Fozzie and all these other bands. Scooter is basically retired in, in New Orleans, but he has money and he's comfortable. And, you know, for him to do this band is a, is a joy for him. So we are all very sort of comfortable in our lives. So when we got together to do Shiprocked, it was, um, it was a pleasure. It was just fun. I mean, we were, you know, we were like, hey, look at all of us. We've been together 20 years. And then we went and did the stuff we just did. And that was great. So you tell know, everybody what Shiprocked was, if people don't know what it is. Well, I, if you don't know what Shiprocked is. But anyways, Shiprocked <laughs> is basically... You know, it's like a it's like a hard rock cruise. Right. And um, they had it last year, February 2nd, right before COVID hit. And uh, we were on it. We played with uh, uh, Asking Alexandria was on. Um, there was a million bands on. Uh, Hell Yeah was on. Um, 
geez, there was so many cool bands. Uh, Hailstorm. Yeah, Hailstorm. Uh, the dudes were on there on a promo. And they were talking like all these great bands are here. Like, dude, oh my God, Raw's here. And then it cut to you guys. Like, like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. But I mean, like the people yeah, yeah. in the in Hailstorm. the show were like, dude, Raw's here. Hailstorm's first tour they ever did with any band was with Raw. That's crazy. Was a favorite Phil McGathy back in 2005. So um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, Rock uh, uh, um, Ship Rock was awesome. And then obviously COVID hit and we all had to like isolate, but it just gave me time to finish the record. And then we all got together in August to do the videos. And then we didn't see each other again until a little while ago when we rehearsed for the live stream. So, you know, or virtual concert, I should say. Yeah. But the, uh, but the, uh, but the virtual concert thing is going to be insanely cool. Like Looking forward to it. We're going to have not a house full because we're still in quarantine and limit numbers, but we're going to have a little group Sweetwater here. Studios and Sweetwater Sound, people who order music here from Sweetwater, they have the ma- the most massive facilities and just top notch everything. I mean, we must have. I mean, this this virtual concert is going to look like it was fifty thousand dollars, easy, you know, all to make like five hundred bucks. Yeah. But still, <laughs> but it's going to be it's going to be really 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 cool looking. Like you know, I mean, uh, not that I I mean I need it. I'm old and fat now, so I'm going to need as cool a visual as possible to keep you interested. But it, I know it sounds good. Yeah, I'll wrap up with you in a minute because I know you're a busy dude, but all the other things you got going on in your producing career, a lot of cool, a lot of cool groups you're working with. You mentioned Star Set. Um, I followed uh, Maytal Cohen's album. You guys did a you, you did a pretty good killer cover uh, Hotel California on there, but I thought that whole album was awesome. You know, it was unique in the sense that it, it had some raw flavor to it with you on there, but it sounded its own great um, it was own great mix of music and I loved how her drums actually stood out. And if people aren't familiar with her, she is just like a YouTube drummer extraordinaire, probably one of the most famous female drummers of all time. But um, highest, the highest subscribing is the highest subscribed drummer in the world, male wow. or female. Crazy. And it was cool how her drums like it didn't just become something that was in the background. Like you can hear her play and you can kind of well, tell. I mean, I mean you can when tell the that's most her. Famous person, when the most famous person in the band is the drummer and she's paying for everything. You got to make sure the drums are really clear and mixed, you know? So we, uh, I did that on purpose and um, doing that project probably was half of the reason why I wanted to do another raw record anyway, Mm -hmm. because it just made me feel like, well, now I just want to start singing again, you know? So it was, it was a, it was a good thing. And I, you know, me and her, we have, we have this weird love affair where, you know, we just, we talk for five minutes and have chords and then we just argue. So her husband's always like, well, the two of you just get married already because this is annoying because we're constantly fighting. Constantly. She drives me crazy. Anyway. So, needless to say, you guys aren't going on tour together. Well, maybe. I mean, I can't. <laughs> She's got to get another singer to do that. I couldn't do both shows. Um, but speaking of touring, hopefully, you know, Seven Dust Alter Bridge might be a thing. Hopefully some dates with Star said. Hopefully, you know, I'm going to reach out to all of our old friends, Breaking Benjamin, Shine Down, and all that and see if we can get on some of those dates. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll end up doing some stuff with non-point because we're managed by the same people and you know we're gonna we're gonna see it's gonna be awesome yeah you're yeah. working with uh with lj witherspoon from seven dust he's got a song on the album and uh you also work with tommy vex right uh so i worked on about a year and a half ago i worked on two songs for tommy that started out as just tommy songs and then ended up being bad wolf songs and then he ended up being you know basically they ended up I guess kicking him out. I don't know how to explain it really, but yeah, it's a weird situation. Uh, but he's not in the band anymore. But one of the songs uh, that we did 
is still a bad wolf song. And then the other one I think, you know, might end up with Tommy if he ends up doing something. I don't know. It's very complicated, very everyone involved is incredibly emotional. So I'm trying not to be too invested in anybody's <laughs> thing. But oh but yes, the songs are very cool, you know, and, and it's a and it's a rare time where I wrote a heavy song that ends up being like that ended up really heavy. So nice. So the new album drops next Friday, March 19th, 2021. And the live show is going to be the same night. Um, I'm definitely going to be tuning in there. You're going to have a nice little house full over here watching you guys. And I'm just, I got to say, I'm so excited you guys are back at it. Like if there was any time for you guys to come back out with an album, it was like springtime after all this COVID crap and quarantining, you know, the world needed raw right now. The timing, the timing does feel right. And it feels good. And it feels like um, there's a, you know, for the people who know us, there's just a relief that we're doing something because I think a lot of people are tired of music that's either super duper stylistic or just negative and sort of angsty and sort of feeding on whatever. You know, I love Bring Me the Horizon. Bring Me the Horizon is one of my favorite bands and I think they sound awesome, but you know, they're still angsty and, you know, even Parasite Eve, which is a cool song and, and, and snarky it's still sort of like dark to me. And I, and I, and I just want to hear something on the mainstream where it's a little bit brighter, a little bit hopeful, maybe some healing qualities. Is that terrible? You know, that's the reason why the song I did with Dustin, it's like, it's probably the reason why it was originally a star set song. It probably didn't end up on his record just because it was too hopeful, but it's, you know, for, for raw, it's very on brand and I feel very good about it, you know? So it was cool to hear LJ's voice in a different tone. I mean, I'm just used to it in Seven Dust, so it was kind of cool to hear him. In the, I, like, I didn't even know it was him in the beginning of the song, but it was cool yeah, to hear the different the dynamic. The truth of it is, is, is that most people won't know it's him until it gets to the chorus. Yeah. And the um, the stuff I'm doing with him, I mean, we we did a we did a, a cover of a Jacob Banks song called Chainsmoking. So if you go to Lejean Witherspoon on, on Spotify, you can check out the Chainsmoking um, cover that we did. It's really cool. I'm doing the beatbox thing. I'm like doing all the sounds with my mouth and, and LJ singing, but it's a really good opportunity to hear him singing something bluesy and soulful without it being metal. <clears throat> and his whole record record we're working on is all very, it's very, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's radio rock, but it's like Gary Clark Jr. meets some heavy stuff with real radio choruses. Like that's what it is. It's really cool. Very happy with it. Nice. Well, I hope to see you guys on tour whenever the, the time comes. Don't forget about uh, all of us up in the Northeast. You know, there's no more Mistress Carrie and AAF anymore to to blow you guys up up here. That's kind of a heartbreaker, but everybody out this way. I went to the, the one of the Critical Mass shows in 2014 on the last tour, and, I mean, it was probably the best show out of them all. But can't wait to see you guys back out there. It's going to be awesome. Very good. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we'll do it again soon. So we're going to play a song off of In a Corrupted. So how do you want to intro this one? Yeah. So this is uh, the song we were talking about before. This is uh, My Roxanne. It's called Jezebel. And it's uh, coming to you now.